Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, James Blitz. On the show this week, Dominic Strauss-Kahn resigns from the IMF amid allegations of sexual assault in New York. But who will succeed him? U.S. President Barack Obama calls for Israel to withdraw from the West Bank. How will his comments be viewed in Jerusalem? And we'll hear from Thailand about the upcoming elections under a backdrop of violence. In the studio, I'm joined by Tobias Buck, our Jerusalem bureau chief, and Chris Giles, our economics editor. First of the Dominic Strauss-Kahn case and the future of the IMF, let me start with you, Chris. The allegations against Mr. Strauss-Kahn have dominated the week's headlines, but of course his resignation as head of the IMF creates a key vacancy, especially given the sovereign debt crisis in many countries. So, Chris, Dominic Strauss-Kahn resigned this week. Who do you see as being in the in the lineup to replace him? Well, certainly the favourite at the moment is uh, is Christine Lagarde, the French finance minister. She uh, is very well liked. She certainly has political clout, particularly around Europe, and may be able to play or would be able to play the same role that Dominic Strauss-Kahn played in trying to bang heads together to try and resolve the Eurozone crisis. What might be against her is certainly a court case hanging over her in France, and also a feeling that she might not be an economist, and you might want an economist in a role, particularly when there's a rather difficult sovereign debt issue going on in Europe and you don't necessarily want a politician in charge. Just one thing there on Christine Lagarde. I mean, the IMF, a lot of its time is being taken up, obviously, by dealing with the European sovereign debt crisis. I mean, how much is her candidacy undermined by the fact that she's a European and to some extent, if you like, party pre and all of that? And wouldn't it be better for the IMF to have somebody who simply is not involved in in what's going on in Europe and, and viewing it from the outside? There are two schools of thought here. One one school of thought is exactly that. It'd be better to have a neutral person who can take a very technocratic decision on what's best for the credit union, which is the IMF, and to make sure that uh, you try and do things in the best way possible. The other school of thought is actually you do want a European involved because quite often you have to bang heads together, persuade perhaps Germany, Finland, to actually make some sacrifices. In the way Strauss-Kahn did. In exactly the way Strauss-Kahn did, and maybe someone who doesn't have the respect of European leaders, and it has to be at the at the head of state level, you have to gain respect and have political authority. If you can't do that, then you just end, might end up with a crisis and a mess. I'm more inclined to the latter view. I think that is actually very important. And I think we do have to remember that just as with Dominic Strauss-Kahn took on quite a different personality and a different view when he moved from French politics into um, international politics, I think we should expect, if a European candidate is chosen then we should expect and certainly hope that that person will not 
you know, play the same record they have done domestically on the international scene. Very good. You've mentioned Christine Lagarde. Who else would you say is among the runners and riders? Clearly, Kamal Dervish, from uh, he's of Turkish origin, um, is uh, and has formerly the head of the United Nations Development Programme. Very well, also respected in Europe, could easily be a candidate. When we're moving into the emerging world, very highly respected is the central bank governor of Mexico, Augustin Carstens. He um, is very much a player on the international scene. The the thing is about the emerging uh, candidates, as such we haven't got any declared candidates yet, is that there doesn't seem to be any coalescing of views or unity behind any one candidate. And I think that is absolutely crucial if we're not going to have a European. I would have thought we will have the European, certainly the Eurozone, and Quite possibly, I think almost certainly, the whole European Union lining up between one, behind one candidate. The only way I think you can get a non-European actually making it past the sort of initial skirmishes and to the finishing line will be if everyone lines up behind another very heavyweight, very respected candidate. And then, you, then the key question is, where does the US jump? We've had this tradition for years that the World Bank job basically goes to an American and the IMF job goes to a European. I mean, is that... Is that definitely how it's going to be? I mean, obviously you're saying there are other candidates from outside the European sphere, but what's the American view in all this? Are they basically happy to see the IMF go to a European so they keep the World Bank role, or are they thinking differently? Well, certainly the public view among Europeans and Americans is that it should be a merit-based selection. But that's the public view. The private view almost certainly is, and that's more public within Europe at least, is that the, uh, they'd want another European candidate. Even countries who have in the past said, well, actually be a good time not to have a European candidate like the UK are quietly making noises that it's, we've, given up, we've given enough to the emerging markets and maybe it is actually time. We don't want to give up the managing director. And it's pretty clear that the US does not want to give up the presidency of the World Bank, which is coming up next year when Bob Zellick is due to stand down. So it isn't just some sort of uh, theoretical discussion for the US for something that will happen in a few years' time. They pretty much know that if they don't support a European candidate, then Europe is certainly not going to line up behind an American candidate next year. That's very clear. Chris, thank you very much indeed. Let's turn to the Middle East. We're joined in the studio by Tobias Buck, who's normally based in Jerusalem but is here in London. It's good to see you. Barack Obama, as we know, has made a very important speech on the Middle East. And at the heart of that speech has been a call for Israel to get itself behind a two-state solution with the Palestinians and to withdraw to the territory that it occupied before the 1967 war. What's your view on that? That's clearly going down very badly with the Israelis, isn't it? Yes, it is clearly going down very badly. I mean, there were two things, I think, that uh, that angered the Israelis or that angered the Israeli government in particular. The first was the very clear reference that Barack Obama made to the 1967 border. Now, of course, Israel, in an eventual peace deal, wants to hang on to uh, some of the settlements uh, it, it has erected in the West Bank. Uh, that means uh, departing from the 1967 line. So they do not want this to be sort of nailed down in any international forum. So that so they're very upset about that. The second thing they were very uh, um, displeased about was um, Barack Obama's call for a full withdrawal from Palestinian territory, which runs counter to Israel's demand to retain a military presence, at the very least in the Jordan Valley. So those two things um, angered them and uh, obviously got things off to a pretty bad start for this uh, meeting in Washington, which... Um, 
uh, or for, for Netanyahu's trip to Washington, which was supposed to be rather more friendly than some of the earlier gatherings he's had with the American president. The backdrop to all this, of course, is that we're moving towards the United Nations General Assembly in September, where a move is going to be put forward for the UN General Assembly to approve, call for formally, a, a two-state solution. Uh, and that is something which the US is definitely going to veto, I think. There's no question about that, although Britain and France are almost certainly going to back that. Now, do you think that what President Obama has done is enough to stop the British and French supporting that? Or or do you think we are moving to something what's being called a road crash in um, in, in, in September? I think the jury on that is still out and much will depend on how exactly the resolution that the Palestinians intend to table is will be will be phrased. But I think the way it's looking now, uh, the Americans will not vote in favor of this resolution. That's quite clear. Um, the French are widely expected to vote in favor. The Germans are widely expected to vote against, which really leaves um, the UK as, as, as the country that people are, are wondering about. Uh, will they go with the Palestinians or will they um, ultimately abstain or even vote against? Is that an important moment, do you think? Are we coming to a, you know, that we've been to and fro on the Palestinian peace process for the, the, the two-state solution for so long. But, I mean, is this a really key moment now? I think it's an important moment, not in the sense that uh, we are very close to seeing a sort of real uh, creation of a Palestinian state on the ground. I think there's just too many obstacles in the way uh, of that. But what I think September will do or what the Palestinians want September to do, is to show Israel very clearly that the patience has, that international patience has run out, that they will have um, not just um, the support of the Arab countries and African countries, but there's now a sort of emerging international consensus that wishes to see a Palestinian state established in the borders of 67 very quickly. Tobias, I'm sure we'll be talking to you about this you know, regularly in the run-up to that September meeting. Thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. And so to our final topic today, Thailand. The country is about to hold its first general election since 2007. On July the 3rd, a divided electorate will cast their votes as the world watchers for outbursts of violence such as those seen last year in Bangkok. The announcement alone has provoked a shooting and a number of protests. Earlier this week, Serena Tarling spoke to Tim Johnston, the FT's Bangkok correspondent, about the current situation. The polls here in Thailand are remarkably unreliable, but such as we have show the two main parties, the Democrats, who are part of the coalition government at the moment, and Pue Thai, neck and neck. There was a poll uh, about three weeks ago that showed the two parties at between 25 and 26 percent, uh, with 33 percent undecided. There are other polls that show the big regional variations in Thailand. There was a poll last week in the north of the country, which, of course, is a, an opposition stronghold, that showed that Pueh Thai was uh, running at 64% compared to the Democrats' 20.7%. So although they're running very close in the polls, this is a very deeply divided country. Are we likely to see similar violent outbursts in the coming weeks to those seen on the streets of Bangkok last year? Elections in Thailand are historically fairly violent. We have uh, conflicts between different regionally placed power groups. There are differing opinions about whether we're going to see violence. Probably not the sort of street violence, the sort of uh, crowds taking to the streets and taking on the police that we saw last year, 
But what we might see is canvases for the different parties taking over. And there are signs that the temperature is already rising. And we haven't really seen the start of the campaigning season yet. There have been a number of political posters that have been torn down. That's something new in Thailand. Normally, there's a degree of tolerance. And also, if you go to the north of the country, again, this opposition stronghold, there are a number of villages that have got signs on their village gate saying, this is a red village, this is an opposition village. That, again, is a worrying sign. And I think the Democrat politicians, particularly in the north of the country, and possibly Puerto Thai politicians in the uh, Democrat strongholds in the southern part of the country, being nervous about going to these areas to campaign. So it is going to be a very tense uh, three or four weeks, I think, uh, as we see which way this is going to go. And what are the main issues over which this election campaign is being fought? Well, the campaign issues are going to be things like the economy. Uh, the country has, has bounced back very strongly from the uh, the uh, global crisis a couple of years ago. Uh, GDP is growing. Hard commodity or soft commodity prices here, of course, benefit the farmers. But we seem to be going into a bit of a downturn. The global economy seems to be cooling a little, uh, and we're seeing inflation going. So that's, I think, going to influence voters. But I think very much this is going to be an ideological uh, battle between the parties. This is, as I said, a deeply divided country, and I think people will know who they're going to vote for despite the uh, economic conditions. So far, the campaign platforms have mostly been seeming to, to buy votes. The Democrat says they're going to raise the minimum wage by 25%. Puerto says we'll do it by 40%. So there are all these sort of things, and it looks like a sort of populist bidding battle between the Democrats and Puerto at the moment. And what do you think is the most likely outcome of this election? It's very unclear. There have been some change to the electoral system, which makes predictions even more difficult. Most analysts think it unlikely that either of the big parties will get an absolute majority. So we're probably looking at another coalition, which means that the king-making power, if you like, is going to be in the hands of some smaller parties, parties like Pumjaitai, which is in the current coalition with the Democrats, uh, Chartai Patana. These parties are, are fairly opportunist historically. Uh, they have in the past uh, been vulnerable to arm twisting by the army. We think the army were probably quite heavily involved in stitching together the current coalition. But it really depends. No one really knows who will get a plurality, who will get more votes. And I think that is a possible source of conflict if Puertai gets more votes but isn't able to form a government, I think its supporters could be very disappointed and that could lead to some fairly unpleasant uh, demonstrations after the polls. That was Serena Tarling talking to Tim Johnston and that's it for this week. My thanks to Chris and Tobias in the studio and to Tim Johnston in Bangkok. World Weekly was produced by Rob Minto. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.